seats. Everyone doing well? Yeah. Good? You happy with the person you sit next to? Yeah. yeah. Anyone want to quickly move? No? Okay. Good. It's so good to be here. And uh, uh, I just know God's going to do some great things in this, little, this, this time that we have together. Uh, a little bit of my story. Uh, I grew up in a place in, in Melbourne. Uh, don't hold that against me. Um, but grew up in Melbourne and uh, my parents divorced when I was about five. Uh, my dad uh, was really was a drug addict and sold drugs. Uh, we'd go visit my dad every Friday night, and uh, he'd have like 20 mates over. They'd be doing drugs, people rocking up to the house to buy drugs. Uh, we lived with my mum uh, most of the time, and uh, she also did drugs, uh, excessive alcohol. Uh, most of my aunties and uncles did drugs. Uh, even some of my grandparents did drugs. Uh, you know you're in trouble when pop smokes bombs, okay? That's a... It's a bad start to laugh. You know, it's funny because I do that joke to test how naughty the crowd is. And you guys laughed a lot more than the 9 o'clock service. And I'm just wondering if that's why you come to the 11. Okay? What were you doing last night? Anyway, uh, you slept in, didn't you? Anyway, sorry. Uh, but uh, I, I followed in my dad's footsteps, and uh, at the age of about 12 or 13, I started to smoke cigarettes, uh, binge drinking, uh, marijuana. Uh, by the time I was 15, I was injecting speed, uh, using acid, ecstasy. Uh, when I was 16, and I'm going to share this story at the end of my last 10 minutes, uh, I took an acid trip and I overdosed. I was unconscious for three hours, and I had basically I had the devil appear before me in my mind, and, and it left me with what psychologists would have drug no diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis, where the television would speak to me, the radio would speak to me, I'd hear voices inside my head telling me I should kill myself. Uh, long story short, from 13 to 23, uh, I used drugs almost every day of my life. Uh, I got a photo of what I look like. Let's put, that's not it. No, there we go. There I am making a cake. Uh, I can't tell you what's in the cake. Uh, again, it's just for my naughty friends. Anyway, uh, um, but uh, there I was, 63 kilos, pretty messed up from the drugs. Uh, you can take that down because it's embarrassing. Uh, but had an auntie that, that prayed for me for 17 years that I would one day encounter the love of God. And uh, every birthday, she would send me a birthday card, and it would say that Jesus loves you, have a Bible verse in it. Uh, always Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you, uh, not to harm you, but to prosper you, uh, to give you a hope and a future, says the, the Lord God Almighty. And if I be honest with you, I get this card, I'm 23, uh, I'm partying, I'm living on the Gold Coast at this point. And, you know, I just, I read the card, think, yep, she's a Christian crackpot, you know, sort of just threw the card away. It was about two weeks later. It was a Saturday night, I was getting ready to go to a nightclub, I was dressed in nightclub clothes, and my mum rings me and says, you know, you never even rang your auntie to say thank you for the card she sent, and so just to get my mum off my back, I thought I'd quickly ring my auntie, it'll just take 30 seconds, and I ring this lady that's been praying for 17 years, and as I hear her voice, she says, hello, hello, as soon as I heard her voice, it was like heaven opened up. And the love of the Father tangibly came over my entire being. I was so overwhelmed by this tangible, unconditional love of the Father that as soon as I spoke to my auntie, I said, hello, I, I broke down and began to cry. And That was the very first time that she helped me to pray a prayer where I invited Jesus Christ to come and live inside of my heart. Uh, the next day, I, I went to a church for the first time, and I publicly made a decision for Jesus, and, but still battled with drug addiction and, you know, so many other things, and, and I was fully born again. I was alive to Christ, but I still battled with this addiction, because who knows that you can be a Christian but still have stuff going on in your life? It's called being a human being. It's why we need a Savior, and uh, I, uh, you know, I was two weeks in my Christianity, and I'd heard the pastor say that there was nothing God couldn't do. And I just began to pray and I said, God, I'm sick of being a drug addict. I, I want you to take this addiction away from me. And 
And all of a sudden, faith began to rise. Uh, because faith began to rise because a lady had been praying for 17 years. And, and, and faith began to rise and began to hit the ground. And I said, God, as a brand new Christian, I'm like, God, when will you do it? When will you take this thing away from me? And as clear as anything, I hear this voice that says 726. And I stood up a bit startled thinking, what does that mean? And as I was thinking, what does it mean? I hadn't looked at my clock in a couple of hours and I saw my kitchen clock and it was exactly 7.26. And it was at that moment that I knew that I knew that I knew that I would never need drugs again, never need cigarettes again, never had a withdrawal, never had a desire. You know, what I love is what took the devil 23 years of this downward destructive demonic cycle just took God one word to say it's done, it's finished, it's over. Come on, why don't we give God praise? He's so good. You know, in that moment, God told me some things that were going to happen in my life. And the night before, I'd seen this girl uh, at, a, at a fancy dress party. She was dressed up as Barbie, you know, Barbie doll. She, Barbie hair, Barbie skirt, the whole Barbie thing going on. Uh, I, you know, she, she walked in front of me. I, I start drooling a little bit. Uh, my eyes were popping out. I said, how you doing? Uh, she ignored me because I look like the cake guy. And uh, that was the end of my Barbie experience. Uh, I've been in counseling ever since. No, not really. Uh, but she went off and f- had a party. And this next night, I have this crazy God encounter. And God, as I lie on the floor, he says, Lucas, the girl you saw last night, she's the girl you're going to marry. I said, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it for you. God, send me, I will go. And, uh, and uh, you know, so it, it took her a year and a half to come to her senses and see what she was missing out on. No, no, no. Took me a year and a half to be even close to being ready for a godly functional relationship. Uh, but we've been married almost 15 years. And uh, I've got a photo of Barbie that night at her party. Come on, let's put that up. There she is. And uh, let me quickly show you what happens when you marry Barbie. There we go. Two beautiful little boys. Love your prayers. We're about to move to America in four weeks. Just taking our whole family because God has told us to go. And now we're just going in faith. And also, I've got a USB that has about 15 messages on it. A lot of the messages I think deals with things like fear, worry, uh, addiction, just inner healing, that kind of stuff. So if you think that will help you, faith and all that kind of stuff, you can get those outside the info desk. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Uh, the guys have got on the screen. Just give, let me give you the, what, what's happening before this, this text. You know, we get to this point in history in the Bible. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel. And uh, Saul sort of gave into his own sinful nature. And he lost everything that God wanted him to have. Uh, the way Saul's life ended is he was the king. But in his last days, he's surrounded by the enemy. And, and he deliberately falls on his sword so that they can't kill him. On the same day, his son Jonathan is also killed in battle. Jonathan was best friends with David. They, they loved each other deeply. They were the best of friends, brothers in a sense. And now we find David, he's finally become king. And one of the first things he does as king because of his love for Jonathan is found here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. It says, David asked, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? I won't read the whole chapter, but let me tell you what happens. There's a servant named Ziba. And he comes before the king and he says, well, actually, Jonathan has a son and his name is Mephibosheth. He's living in a place called Lodabar and he's crippled in both of his feet. This crippled boy is brought before the king and he's petrified. And the king says, don't fear. I'm going to give you back the land that your grandfather Saul lost. I'm going to give you servants to work the land. And the coolest part, he says, and from now on, you will sit at my table as if you were one of the king's sons. And, and what, what a, uh, you know, a, a cool story that, that, that you'll sit at, at the king's table. And, you know, the thing that I love about this story is the plan of God for you and I is hidden in this particular text. And that would be sort of cool if this was a parable that God made up. 
and then said, hey, surprise, in the story I made up, I've hidden a message in that story. But this is not a parable. This is three generations of history that just naturally unfold. And God says, surprise, my plan is woven into the very fabric of history. Now, I'm going to need some volunteers. I've got my three uh, volunteers uh, to come here. And I'll get Mason to come as well. That'd be fantastic. Excellent. Mason, you know where to stand. And, and, uh, and if you guys could stand youngest, oldest, youngest first, if you need help with that. Yep. Sorry, sir. Yeah, you're in the middle. No, no, no. You're actually. Hang on. Sorry. Do you... No. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. So, so, so what we've got here, okay, is we've got three generations, okay, three generations represented. We've got grandfather Saul. Sorry, sir. Uh, grandfather Saul. We've got his son Jonathan. You just made it. Uh, his son Jonathan, and then his son Mephibosheth. And then over here, I chose Mason deliberately to be David because the Bible says that David was handsome and ruddy. Okay. And, and I've got to be honest with you because we're in church. So uh, Mason has heard this message on podcast before and before the service, he asked if he could be David. So there you go. <laughs> and, and maybe that's not fully true. But anyway, so what we've got three generations. Okay. The first of this generation is Saul. Saul, often if you know the Bible, if you don't, that's totally cool. But uh, often we could think that Saul wasn't chosen by God because he did such a bad, God, bad job. But actually God handpicked Saul. He, he chose him. He called him out. And God wanted Saul to be a great king, to rule, reign of authority, dominion, to bless Israel. But Saul, through his own sinful nature, he lost everything that God wanted him to have. Uh, the first of this generation is actually a picture of the first Adam who God also wanted to rule, reign, have authority and dominion. But Adam, through his own sinful nature, also lost everything that God wanted him to have. The first of this generation is a picture of the first Adam. The second in this generation is a picture of the second Adam, or the Bible calls him the last Adam in Jesus Christ. See, everybody in that town in that day knew that it was Jonathan's birthright to inherit the kingdom. He was Saul's son. But if you go back a few chapters in 2 Samuel, you'll find Jonathan appear before David. And in this story, David represents God the Father. And Jonathan comes before David and he lays down his sword and his robe and his belt. And what he's actually saying to David, he's saying, although the kingdom is mine to claim, I recognize what the Spirit of God is doing. And I lay down what is mine for the good of God the Father and for the good of God's people. See, Jonathan is a picture of Jesus Christ, who could have come 2,000 years ago to earth to claim back what was his, but rather than claim it, he laid down his very life for the good of God the Father and for the good of you and I. The first generation is the first Adam, the second is the last Adam in Jesus Christ. The third generation represents everybody to come after Jesus Christ. See, he was crippled in both of his feet. In other words, he couldn't get to where he needed to be. It wasn't even his fault that he's crippled. When his grandfather lost the kingdom, he was five. He was dropped as a little boy, and now he's crippled. Symbolic of a generation that live in this city that are crippled by something called sin that stops them from being where they need to be, which is an intimate relationship with God the Father. And it's not even their fault that they're crippled by sin. It goes all the way back to the very first man in Adam, and now every human being is born with this crippling condition. He's also living in a place called Lodabar, which means place of desolation. Again, symbolic of a generation that are crippled by sin and trapped and living in desolation. But then the great part of the story is David, who represents God the Father. And, and, it's, and he, when the kingdom has aligned, he stands up and he says, Who can I bless from the house of Saul for the sake of Jonathan? 
But what he's really saying is who that's crippled by sin, who that is trapped and living in desolation, who could I invite to sit at my table as a king's son or daughter for the sake of my son, Jesus Christ? Who could I give a great inheritance to? Come on, let's give these guys a big round of applause. Thanks so much, guys. You know, uh, there's a couple of people missing from the story because if it's the full plan of God, we had God the Father, we had God the Son, where's the Holy Spirit? And then also, my mind races a bit because he lived in the poor side of town, Mephibosheth, and the king lived in the rich side of town, so geographically there's a great distance between the two. How did this crippled boy get all the way to the king's palace? It's not a far stretch to think that the king wanted it done. One of the servants would have been ordered to go and get this young boy. The, the servant in this story that knew everything about this boy, even where he lived, was a servant named Ziba. And if you trace Ziba's name back in the Hebrew, you'll eventually come to the words army or Lord's army. See, it's the Lord's army that leaves the palace and goes to the place of desolation and finds people that are crippled by sin and carries them to their destiny and their inheritance. And you say, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, Acts 1.8 says the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is so that the church could come together and get goosebumps and feel good. Sorry, it doesn't say that, does it? It says the role of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is that we would have dunamis, dynamic power to be effective witnesses all over the planet. Where was the Holy Spirit in this story? He was on the Lord's army, anointing and empowering the Lord's army to carry someone to their destiny and their inheritance. See, I'm so thankful that I had an auntie that wasn't just into doing fellowship, although it's incredibly important. I'm so thankful I had an auntie that wasn't just into listening to the Word of God every week, although it's incredibly important. I'm thankful that I had an auntie that knew that she was anointed and empowered by heaven and that she was going to carry this crippled, broken boy. And even if it took 17 years, she was going to carry me and carry me until I found my place, partaking of my destiny and my inheritance. I want to quickly give you three things that my auntie did to bring me to the place of salvation. And there's sort of three things that Jesus did also. I'll, I'll explain this sort of at the end. The first thing my auntie did is she simply came down to where I was at. You know, when I was at my worst, injecting speed between about 16 and 19, there was times that I'd been awake for three days straight. After three days of no sleep, there were times when I'd licked my lips compulsively so much because uh, your brain's just going so fast that my lips became giant scabs, just, just two big scabs. I would scratch myself with paranoia and end up with scabs and marks all over my body. After three days of no sleep, you're white and pasty. You look like death warmed up. And as a your brain is so scattered, you hardly made any sense at all. But you know what? I can't remember a time when my auntie came to visit and I felt worse because of a visit. See, because she never rode in on her Christian high horse, telling me how bad I was, telling me how I was a terrible sinner, telling me how I was living this... I just needed to look in the mirror to know how bad life was. But every time she came, she came down to it where I was at. She spoke a language that I could understand. She came down to where I was at so that she could take me to where I needed to be. You know, the, uh, I'm so thankful my auntie did this and so does Jesus. I, I'm so thankful that, you know, that we serve a God that didn't stay up in heaven and just say, hey, get your life up to this standard and then we can start to work together. But we serve a God that said, no, let me come down to your brokenness. Let me come down to your struggle so that I can take you to where you need to be. The second thing my auntie did is 
she embarrassed us with generosity. And Matthew 5, 16 says, let your light shine that men would see your good deeds and then give praise to God in heaven. You know, uh, my auntie, she never had a great income. But I can't remember a time when she turned up to her house empty-handed. She'd always bring either a card with beautiful words or chocolates or, you know, some kind of gift. And whenever we'd move houses and there was no money in a single mum family to get in the moving guys and the guys that would come and clean your house, it was do it yourself. And of my mum's six brothers and sisters, she was always the first one to arrive and the last one to leave because she just made a decision that she would embarrass us with generosity until we gave praise to God in heaven. You know, I preached this same message in a church in Perth a little while ago. And there was a doctor in the crowd and he had such a heart for drug addicts but just didn't know how to get them to church. And he listened to this message and straight after the service, he went to the supermarket. He filled his entire car, his boot, with groceries. And he knew where one of these drug addicts lived. And uninvited, he turned up at his house and he said, I hope you don't mind. He said, but I've bought your whole heap of groceries and I just want to fill your freezer and your fridge and your pantry. And this guy couldn't believe what was happening as his doctor starts carrying in all these grocery bags. And the doctor turned to him and said, hey, you need to know that this is completely unconditional. You don't have to do anything at all in return. He said, but I just thought I'd ask. Tonight I'm going to church and we've got this guy that's got a bit of a crazy story. He's going to be speaking. And is there any chance you'd like to come along with me? Guess who the first young man standing at the altar with tears streaming down his face, receiving Christ for the very first time. See, it's not rocket science. Just embarrass people with generosity and eventually they'll give praise to God in heaven. You know, I said my auntie did this and so did Christ. You know, Romans 5, 8, the guys have got it uh, on the screen. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't it amazing that he embarrassed us with generosity? He, he didn't wait for us to get our lives together. He didn't wait for me to become a preacher and then said, now I'll die for you. But while I was at my worst, while I was still in the, in the heap of all my sin, he said, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to pay a price for Lucas Connell so that he can have a gift that he does not deserve, a gift that he has not earned, and a gift that he'll be unwrapping for a million years time called eternal life. He embarrassed us with generosity. The last thing, just if the keyboarder could come. The last thing that my auntie did, I'm going to share this part of my story in just a moment. The last thing my auntie did is she simply, she prayed. She came down to where I was at. She embarrassed me with generosity. But then she prayed. You know, my auntie's told me that whenever she prayed for me, the, the prayer that she prayed, she prayed differently for me than all, my other, all her other nieces and nephews. I had many cousins. and I was leading them all astray, getting them on drugs and getting them on cigarettes at very young ages. And she's told me this prayer that she'd pray for me. And it went like this. She, she's a Baptist lady. Oh, I'm a Pentecostal. I love the Holy Spirit. But, but you know what? She didn't speak in any, any other language. She just got on her hands and knees. There was no keyboard in the background. That was your cue. No, anyway. Uh, and she, there, was, there, there was no keyboard. There we go. Uh, there was no keyboard in the background. She just got on her hands and knees. and She prayed this prayer. It went like this for 17 years consistently. She said, God, I see what the devil's doing in his life. But I pray you'd make him a giant killer. For 17 years, that was the prayer she prayed. She didn't pray that I'd just end up in a church. She didn't pray that I'd just meet Jesus. For 17 years, she prayed I'd become a giant killer. From the moment I became a Christian, I found myself in ministry. Found myself just God doing great things. Being a youth pastor, young adult pastor, campus pastor. Almost five years ago, God told us to step away from our full-time paid income and just go on the road wherever He'd call us to go. By God's grace, we've been all over the world. 
I've seen thousands, more than 5,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ. I've seen hundreds of people set free of all types of addictions. Just a month ago, a lady, chronic depression for 10 years, completely lifted off her life and she's been completely free. A lady just three weeks ago, bound by heroin addiction for 20 years and in one moment just completely set free and she's living a free life today. See, I don't tell you this to say how good I am, but just to show you all I'm doing is riding the wave of 20, of 17 years of prayer. I just stepped into her, her prayer. See, the reason I'm so thankful she prayed is because of this last night. I was 16 years old and I was with this girl we're going to take a drug called acid if you don't know acid is a hallucinogenic a mind altering drug we went to this house to buy the drug and the guys were involved in satanic worship it was a very dark environment there were pictures of satanic symbols death metal satanic bands it was just a very dark environment very black we bought this drug and they said well why don't you just take the drug here with us so we, we took this acid trip and we, we agreed, and after about half an hour, I end up overdosed on this bedroom floor. I'm completely unconscious. And as I lay there unconscious, in my physical self, I'm unconscious, but in my mind's eye, I'm very awake. And all of a sudden, this darkness, this evil that I could not have imagined existed, came over my entire being. And then this being stood before me, so clear in my mind's eye, and he literally dripped with evil. And he spoke to me in my mind's eye. He said, Lucas, you're dead. No one loves you. No one likes you. No one wants your soul. Who do you want to give your soul to? And then like a lawyer, he painted this picture of my sinful nature, which the reality is all of our sinful nature is guilty. And he painted this picture of why would anyone want my sinful nature, all the wrong things that I've ever done in my life. And then he, it was like that he was the only option. He was the only one that would take my soul. There was this battle going on for my soul. Something in me just knew not to let go. And I didn't know what to do, but just keep fighting. And eventually I went to this other phase of where I was just in total darkness. And I was tormented like I can't even articulate properly. Absolutely ridiculed, mocked, teased, the butt of every single joke. Pure evil. Eventually got to this third stage where it was like this evil had had enough and now I could see my physical self and it was like my body was thrown, discarded into this disgusting pit like a, a piece of meat that, that, that this, this being didn't want anymore and I was thrown in this disgusting pit I saw these demon creatures as they were coming down and ripping my flesh apart I remember screaming as that 16 year old boy thinking this can't be it this can't be where I stay forever. I'm 16. I remember screaming with all my, 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 my full of fear. As I was just about no more, as I was ripping me apart, I, I woke up on that bedroom floor. I got out of that house as quick as you can imagine. It was about one o'clock in the morning. I still remember this so clearly. I remember going home to where I lived with my mom. And I remember standing at my, my arched doorway right near my bunk beds. And I remember standing there holding my bunk bed. And I remember thinking to myself, that, that felt like the realest thing that I've ever encountered. That I thought it couldn't be real. It's what they call a bad trip. It was a couple weeks later and I was out with some friends and we were going to this bar called the Cantina Bar and we are parked at the front. I was sitting in the back seat of the passenger side and my friend was next to me in the middle. Completely randomly, just out of the blue, he just turns to me and says, I heard you met the devil the other week. As soon as he said those words... It was like a manifestation of evil came over my entire being. 
it was so strong that I was literally frozen in fear. I couldn't move. I was paralyzed in fear. I couldn't speak. I couldn't answer his question. He's just asked me about the devil. We're at the front of the cantina bar. I'm frozen in fear. He looks at me, but it was like he looked into me, this friend. And he said, guess who's going to be at the cantina bar tonight? And it was literally like that evil spoke through him straight into my heart, saying, I'm still here. For the next three years of my life, I had what psychologists would have diagnosed as drug-induced psychosis, where the television would answer my thoughts. The radio would answer my thoughts. Every day I'd have this voice speaking to me saying, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. The thing that makes this story even more horrific than it already is, is this voice convinced me that who I'd met that night was actually God Almighty, the one controlling the whole universe, the one that created all things. And I 100% believed that I'd met God and He took pleasure in my torment. Every day it said, no one likes you, no one loves you, you should kill yourself. Uh, I would often ask this question inside my head. I never told anyone what was going on. I would often ask this question. I'd say, well, hang on, if you're God and you want me to die, you want me to kill myself, then why didn't I just die that night when I was on the acid trip? Why didn't I just stay there forever? And as sharp as anything, that evil voice would say, because I hate you so much, I'm going to torment you here on earth. And then I'm going to take you and torment you for all of an eternity. As a 16 and 19 year old boy, no one knew, but there were so many nights that I would cry myself to sleep in absolute hopelessness because I believed I'd met God and He took pleasure in tormenting me. Eventually it got too much. I was 19 and I made a decision to end my life. I'd worked out how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it. And I was just a week or two away from ending my life and I'm sitting at home and of all shows I'm watching Oprah Winfrey. Oprah saved my life. I'm watching Oprah and the guests on her show were people that had died for like one minute, two minutes, three minutes. And they're all there to talk about what they saw in those few moments of death. And it was very new agey. They all sort of just talked about a white tunnel that was full of peace. They went in and came out. I was getting annoyed because I'm thinking, I didn't see no white tunnel. I didn't feel no peace. I was only half watching the show. At the end of the show, a professor put up his hand and he said, Oprah, my story is very different. Can I share it? She said, you've got two minutes. He says he was an atheist professor at a university, staunch atheist. He said he was traveling on a holiday and while he was traveling, his intestines exploded, perforation in his intestines. He was rushed to a hospital. While on the operating table, he died. He was dead for about three minutes. He said to his shock, because he was such a staunch atheist, he couldn't believe it, but his spirit and his soul left his body. And he was in the hospital room, hovering above the ceiling, and he was watching them operate on his dead body on his open stomach. He said, as he was hovering, these beings came to meet him. And they started to take him away from where his body was. He said, the further we got away, I started to realize that these beings weren't nice. They began to mock me. They began to laugh at me. They began to ridicule me. They began to tease me. And then he said, they began to beat me. And then he said something that I couldn't believe because I'd felt so alone for so long. On Oprah Winfrey, he said, they turned into these feral demon creatures. And they began to rip his soul apart. And then he said something that changed my life forever. He said that as I was just about no more, a little voice in an atheist professor, a little voice rose up on the inside and said, ask God for help. And an atheist professor, as demons were ripping his soul apart, he prayed a prayer and he said, God, if you're real, can you help me out of this situation? 
And in that moment, he woke up on the operating table with defibrillators on his chest and he gave glory to Jesus Christ on Oprah Winfrey. You know, it was in that moment that I realized the answer to my question as to, well, why didn't I die that night? And I received such a hopeless demonic answer. It was at that moment that I realized the reason I didn't die that night when I was that 16-year-old boy was because there was a God in heaven who was the creator of the universe who loved me and had a plan for my life. You know, that truth stopped the psychosis even though, even though I didn't become a Christian for another four years properly. But what I've since realized since I've been a Christian a while now is that truth that I just share, part of it was a half-truth. I mean, the the part that's fully true is, yes, there's a God in heaven and He's the creator of all things. He's all-powerful, almighty. But if my theology says the reason I didn't die that night is because God loved me and had a plan for my life, then you've got to ask this question. Why do drug addicts die every single day without the love of God? Doesn't God love them? Doesn't God have a plan for them? The Bible says He does. Why do people in retirement homes die every single day without the love of God and separated for all of eternity. Doesn't God love them? Doesn't He have a plan for their life? The Bible says He does. Good mums and dads die every single day without His love. See, and what I've become convinced of is the only reason that I'm standing here today preaching in the flesh. The only reason that I didn't end up being a, a little article in the local paper 23 years ago that would have talked about another drug addict young drug addict that was lost in the battle of addiction. The only reason that today I'm not just a photo on my mother's mantelpiece that would have been my 16-year-old debutante ball photo in my ugly green suit and way too much gel in my hair. That 23 years later, people would have come to my mom's house and they would have saw the old photo and I would have said, who's the boy? With a tear in her eye, my mom would have talked about her boy that really was a good kid but he just got caught up in the wrong stuff. And one night he took a drug and we've never seen him again. See, the reason, the only reason that I'm standing in the flesh, the only reason I'm not that article, the only reason that I'm not that photo is because I had one of the Lord's army that stood between hell and my destiny. She continued to appear before heaven and say, Father, I'm back again. Don't you go forgetting my nephew, Lucas Connell. He's going to be a giant killer. Father, it might have been 10 years, but I'm not giving up. I'm back again. Don't you forget my nephew. So remember I said my auntie did these things. So did Jesus, sort of. My auntie came down to where I was at. So does Jesus. My auntie embarrassed me with generosity. So did Jesus. My auntie interceded for my salvation. Jesus didn't. See, the Bible says that Jesus intercedes for the saints. But he's banking on the fact that the saints would be so moved by the love that he has for us that we would be driven to the place of prayer, that we would push apathy to the side, that we would not just be consumed by materialistic things, that we would have occasions where we turn off the television, go into a quiet room where no one else is watching and say, Father, I'm here on behalf of so-and-so. Father, I'm here on behalf of my, my wife or my children or my neighbor or my niece or my nephew. So my question for you is, who will you carry? Who will you bring to the place of salvation? I'm going to pray to that in just a moment. But before I do that, as we get ready to finish up, I, I, I want to ask you a question today. I wonder if you've never, ever given your life to Jesus. Like me 15 years ago. 
it was the first time that the light sort of came on, that I realized that there was a God in heaven that loved me so much. A God that loved me so much that he died a horrible death on a cross so that he could pay the price for my sins. I'd love to pray for you today if you've never, ever done this. In just a moment, I'm going to count to three. I'm not going to get you to come to the front or anything like that. When I get to three, if you'd say, Lucas, I'd like to give my life to Christ like you did for the very first time. When I get to three, in just a moment, I'll get you to quickly slip your hand up. I'll see you put it back down. I'm going to include you in the prayer that I'm about to pray. But then there'll be others in the room and you've done this once before, maybe several times. But for whatever reason, somewhere along the road, you took a wrong turn. And if you were to be honest today within your heart, you know that you're just not right with Christ. See, the thing that I love, and I say this every time I preach, the thing that I love about people not being right with Christ is the furthest that you can ever be away from God, like the absolute furthest you can ever be from Him, is one sentence. One sentence that just says, Father, I'm sorry for where I've ended up. Forgive me. And He says, I've been waiting for you to say that. It's the furthest you can ever be away. Just one sentence, one prayer. I'd love to pray for those two groups of people. One, you've never given your life to Christ. Or two, you have, but you just know, if you are to be real today, you know you're not right with God. And today's the day you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, it's time to get things right. It's time to make Him first in my life. I want to give you the opportunity to be included in that prayer.